Biology research at Microsoft is focused on three main areas, molecular programming, synthetic biology, and stem cell biology. At the intersection of biology and computing, there are implications for health, medicine, and efficient computing techniques. The field of biological computation is in its early days, and there's still lots of work to be done. Colin Gravel works in the Computational Science Group at Microsoft Research, and on today's episode, he explains how Microsoft is investigating biology with the same curiosity and pragmatism that Microsoft investigates computer science. I'd love to do more shows at the border of software and biology, and if you have suggestions, please send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I have a persisting interest in both biology and software, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Colin Gravel works in the Computational Science Group at Microsoft Research. Colin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi there. So your research group at Microsoft is focused on three main areas, molecular programming, synthetic biology, and stem cell biology. And I'd like to get into each of these areas, but we should start more abstractly because there are so many unanswered questions in biology, and I want to get a feeling for how you approach biological questions from the standpoint of computer science, of programming. Is there a certain class of questions that are well-suited today to being solved with computation? Because biology is, is so complex. There's so many moving pieces and so many unknown things today. What are the kinds of questions that we can answer today with computation? Yeah, so we're, we're focusing on these three different kind of example areas. And there's two big questions that drive us. One is trying to understand what biology is doing now. And then the other side of it is how we might we be able to fabricate biological systems? So part of it's inspiration, natural scientific curiosity. And then the other side of it's uh, engineering. So how might we be able to build systems that are useful to society and do that using the power that biology has and the scale and efficiency. How has the frontier of the questions that we can begin to answer and the things that we can study in biology, how has that expanded in recent years? Uh, so one of the big changes, and this is kind of deep on the biology side, is uh, single cell data. So what uh, traditionally might have been done is studying uh, populations of cells or biological systems. But what we've been able to do with like advances in instrumentation and uh, computational methods is identify what a single cell is doing and multiple individual cells and see how that uh, the dynamics of that cell correspond to populations. So it's quite an interesting challenge both to understand what a single cell is doing, but also how it negotiates and works with other cells to achieve a goal. What are those technological advances that have allowed us to zoom in on a single cell? Uh, so some of them are, are like microscopy methods, so also imaging methods, so we can track much better what's going on. So computer vision systems, these type of things that a lot of my uh, colleagues in other groups like who work on things like the Kinect and HoloLens, we can also turn some of those types of methods onto tracking what cells are doing, understanding what behaviors they have, and then feeding those into the kind of computational models we build to try and understand what they're doing and how we might be able to do similar things. Do you think of the human body as a kind of computer? We think it's a useful uh, way to think about it. Um, it's an information processing system. It has uh, inputs and it tries to achieve certain things. Uh, what the origin of that is, uh, it, it's a very philosophical question, uh, but we find it a useful way to think about what's going on and it's led to insights. Uh, as to its very nature, I, 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 it's kind of an open question. Are there ways that you can think of that break down that analogy like are there i'm sure you've thought about this question uh, a fair amount so how i mean how is a biological entity significantly different than the computer systems that we deal with today i mean in general you have these individual processing units and even with like the rise of multi-core systems you don't tend to have so many individual processes especially not to the scale of biology that you have these autonomous units Whereas in computing systems, you, you generally have got the inputs and they collaborate 
and that maybe answers a question you have about uh, uh, why people are using your website more or less. Uh, whereas biology, the individual cells are, are ca might be carrying out a program that they do in concert. So it's a lot more like, like actor models or large-scale distributed systems, but on a scale much bigger than software engineers are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Even those software engineers who are operating a data center and uh, you know, in, in, uh, or an Azure cluster or something, you think it's still a scale that is uh, not not close to what a biological system is processing. Uh, so, on a, a, a the human body contains trillions of individual cells, and each of those cells is very complicated. So, if you do the kind of comparison between like a like one of the newest Intel chips that has billions of transistors. We're, we're several orders of scales bigger than that just on a single cell, uh, it just based on the number of cells in the body. And then there's huge amounts of complexity of how they interact. And it's not this kind of digital on-off. There's uh, significant signals going in between about what's going on. So it's it's just a lot bigger and wider. But interestingly, we can use some of the similar software methods that uh, colleagues use on distributed systems on uh, biological systems. Such as consensus, which we will get into. Yep. Uh, is that right? Yeah, so one of the algorithms we've uh, published, so our, our kind of primary aim is publishing scientific breakthroughs. We also want to feed that into these engineering ideas, but one of them is this idea of the approximate majority calculation. So control theory has these ideas that if you have dis different agents, they need to come to a consensus whether something is true or false, and they might have to do that in real time. And you could take an example in biology if there's some population of cells and some of them seem um, in a bad state, so they might indicate cancer. You might want to indicate, is the overall population uh, a large tumor or is it a small infection? And your, your choices how to behave would be different in those cases. Okay, so we'll talk about more of that a little bit later. But while we're still talking at a high level, why is the area of medicine and biology and this kind of research, why is it useful to Microsoft? So we see it as a big opportunity to just kind of explore uh, where we can get to next. The, the the industries that might exist later are just phenomenal. The, in some senses, the, the whole computing industry is built on programming uh, silicon-based devices. We see situations in industry where if you can have intelligent control over chemical fabrication and you can efficiently design bacteria that can create those products that's a that's an industry that's even bigger than programming silicon chips that the, the potential is enormous but the question is how is it possible how can you do it efficiently and effectively and it sounds like the barriers keeping us from applying some of these computational concepts to biology at this point those barriers are more rooted in science than they are in policy. We're like we're not at the point where it's kind of like with drones, where with drones, like the technology is really getting there, and we can we could imagine very reasonably imagine production systems with drones flying around, if not for the policy. But with biology, you know, we're not really there yet. Right? We're we're it's not like we have policy that's significantly impinging on our ability to progress. Is that right? I mean, there are definitely some of the uh, stem cell type work that we collaborate on that obviously has kind of questions and implications that there are treatments that are happening now based on stem cell therapies. And the challenge is we don't really understand why they work and what the times when they don't work. And some of our work is helping contribute a fundamental understanding to that. So what we hope is that we're helping make it more feasible to give better treatments. So that's probably one area where there's kind of policy and direction of in some senses, we're trying to re-engineer uh, human bodies. Um, we're doing it in a very indirect fashion. Uh, some of the other areas uh, where we do more fundamental long-term research are around uh, computing with molecules. That's a lot more speculative. And I'd agree there that we have some technology questions to answer first. <laughs> okay. So what is at the intersection of machine learning and biology? I mean, so part of it is uh, there's this just enormous corpus of data that we can acquire, but then feeding it through our models and so efficiently choosing the models uh, to do that. So I mean, one of the key techniques we use is uh, it's an idea called uh, MCNC, Monte Carlo Arc of Chains. So, and you can think of this as 
taking taking a, a spot in the, the space of possible behaviors in biology and running a computer simulation from there and seeing whether that simulation gets you to a good result. And if you do this millions and millions of times, you can uh, optimize your model to be more like uh, reality. And so this is kind of one of these machine learning techniques for uh, adaptively understanding. I mean, it's also very useful to have so many machine learning experts uh, to help uh, apply this process to this really interesting application area. And what about specifically deep learning? Like I've done a number of shows recently where we've touched on deep learning and it seems like deep learning is really useful in these areas where you have a complex classification problem where it's hard to define the features that would create or compose a classifier, but we have so many examples that fall under that classification that we can use deep learning to learn the features. It's, you know, the deep learning system can learn those features itself. For example, if you have uh, a billion pictures of tumors, maybe you don't want to create a manual set of classifier or a manual set of features that will classify a tumor, but you can just feed in all those images into a deep learning system. Um, are you seeing any interesting examples of deep learning? We're definitely seeing it. Uh, primarily in my group, we tend to work on w what we term mechanistic models. So understanding how proteins and cells interact. And we tend to calibrate uh, models on that. Where, where I kind of see a lot of opportunities and places where deep learning techniques are being used are the kind of imaging of uh, input data. So if you're imaging how cells are behaving, uh, how well perhaps they're following the programs we might have tried building and, and putting in a Petri dish, there, the deep learning techniques make it a lot cheaper and easier to uh, extract the signal from the system. Uh, but it's kind of on the edge of the inputs to our systems. Can you talk about that in more detail? That, that sounds pretty interesting. I, so uh, a lot of this, I think there's a couple of papers that have been uh, recently released of doing uh, GPU-based image analysis of uh, bacterial colonies. And so... Uh, Historically, a lot of this stuff is done in a, in a very painful way. So uh, this is one of the challenges with with science that if you can get it done with a, a, a PhD student who manually labels data, uh, you can actually get quite far along with that process. And it's useful to do it sometimes by hand, but we're kind of crossing the scales now that we need a lot better constrained uh, models and a lot more accurate. And so it's not feasible to deploy the number of people you'd need to uh, annotate data. And by using some of these deep learning techniques uh, and other machine learning methods, and uh, this is an area that I, I'm, I'm personally an expert in, we're able to get a lot better signal for a lot less effort. Okay, I want to start to talk about some of the areas that your team has looked into specifically. The first one is molecular programming. What is molecular programming? Uh, so this is the kind of building up uh, version. So we sometimes term what we do as nanotechnology. So rather than building smaller and smaller robots, instead what we're doing is taking a double-stranded DNA helix and cutting it in the right places. And so this is a, a, a series of chemical bonds on, on the nanoscale. And we've cut them in just the right places that we can form these useful little units. And one of the things we can do, uh, just for the sake of understanding, is we can cut them so that we can produce the equivalent of an AND gate. So that if we had a little fragment that represented the AND section, you'd need both of the other chemicals to be present in the solution for it to be triggered. And so what we might be able to do is bind on the output of this process to fluoresce. So this means we could plate this up on a Petri dish and then image it. And we've got this equivalent to the, the foundation of uh, electronics. So there is also this term molecular computing. Can you differentiate molecular programming from molecular computing? There might be a bit of a distinction in the sense of the computation that's occurring and we build programming languages to do this. So we've built domain specific languages that are kind of molecular programming in the sense of you designing, simulating, and then the computation that comes out. I mean, the, these terms are a bit interchangeably used as well. Oh, okay. Okay. So do molecules, do they act deterministically enough to build computers out of them? Or do you have to build higher level abstractions out of these molecules 
to factor out the non-determinism. Like with transistors, we have you know we have a notion that it's a zero or a one, it's on or it's off. But in reality, there is a range of uh, of charges, or I can't remember the the ter- voltage or something where. You know, it, it's kind of it's in, in at the lowest level. It's non-deterministic. You know, it's not uh, highly granular if the the transistor is on or off. But we define a range of states that indicate that it's on, and a range of states that indicate that it's off. Is it the same thing with molecules, where you have a sense of non-determinism at the lowest level, and you build abstractions at a higher level that factor out that non-determinism? So this is actually a really interesting ongoing debate. So it's exactly as you say, in electronics, we have this illusion that things are binary and consistent. And it's really interesting that like ongoing work of Intel and other people are to try and get these voltages down so things are more efficient. And the problem with that is you, you might get higher error rates, so they need to balance that. And there's an idea that we might do a similar thing in biology that although the individual gates and reactions are noisy because all sorts of things are happening, um, other things get into solution and break the gates, there might be manufacturing issues. We might be able to uh, build a level of uh, gates and and digital logic on top, despite the system being noisy. Now, the challenge with this is that it, it's, it uses quite a lot of structure, and especially when you attempt to do this uh, type of thing in cells rather than in molecules, you're putting an energy burden on the system again. And in the case of cells, that can be quite bad because cells like to uh, evolve out burden. And so there's this alternative approach is a bit like analog computing, that rather than uh, building a layer of uh, uh, digital logic with gates, instead we can embed the algorithms more directly. And so an idea of this is a bit like we were saying earlier about the approximate majority uh, computation. So it's this, it's, we're not building it out of individual gates as such, we've got this distributed consensus uh, uh, system. And the algorithm is more by been more directly implemented and some of the tools are actually this is their almost their purpose we we build progressively higher abstractions and then just like on the computer you where you compile down to assembly we compile down to dna uh as as letters are you saying that the purpose of or one of the purposes of the consensus protocol that you built at the molecular level was to do this kind of uh build this kind of determinism out of a non-deterministic system? Exactly. So rather than trying to suppress noise, and there are lots of different ways to go this, and they are uh, interconnected, but it might be possible to build some of these algorithms that more directly take advantage of biological-type systems. That Biology is really interesting. It has all this redundancy because, in some ways, that's the more uh, efficient way. Or it might be it just happened to evolve into that position, and then that happened to be successful. But there is a kind of general trend towards things that exist in biology are there because they're more efficient than more complex alternatives. So you have this system of molecular computing, which is where you use molecules to create what are effectively programmable computers at the molecular level. And then you, and then you have molecular programming, which can be used to simulate molecular systems with code so this would be in the in a computer you could simulate how how molecules might work so perhaps you can run simulations a lot more aggressively on the computer than you would be able to with uh you know if, with a wet lab how do you use these two systems together and what does the workflow pipeline look like when you're trying to run a uh, some large experiment or uh, develop some kind of system with these two kinds of systems in conjunction. Yeah. So what we would do this is this is more the ideal workflow. Then I'll talk about what happens in practice as well. Okay. Um, that we would type in a program in one of our design tools, and it looks like a programming language with some very um, obtuse syntax, even worse than like uh, APL and the like. Um, but what it lets you do is then run a simulation of what you expect to happen. And this is built built on energy models and understanding, but it's not doing anything as detailed as like atomistic uh, molecular, because uh, that's too expensive. And, and even with a supercomputer, it can only run for a few milliseconds uh, with a lot of compute. So we've got these slightly higher levels of abstractions that over time we've demonstrated uh, capture what reality happens. We've got this prediction, and this would be a useful piece of functionality. And so. We take the output of our tool that says the DNA, 
we might send it to a company on the internet over the over the web, i.e. the specification. They will, in general, try and fabricate that for us, but depending on the sequences, they might have to talk to us about it. They'll then post the primers through uh, the, the postal service. They'll arrive here in the lab. Uh, we'll then take it and then build up more copies of those and then carry out an, ex an equivalent experiment to the software experiment and then see how well it compares. I want to talk more about this consensus algorithm or uh, system. I'm not exactly sure what it is. So we see consensus in computer science when you have a big distributed system and you need, for example, a, a distributed database. You need each of those database replicas to have an identical sense of the world. Otherwise, when people make requests to this database, to this distributed database, they might get different answers. So you need these different databases to have consensus. And the algorithms that allow those databases to have consensus are quite complicated. Um, they're some of the hardest algorithms I've dealt with in computer science. So how how do you build that into molecular machinery? What was the process and... Um, I mean, what was the motivation for that project? Uh, so a lot of this is, uh, again, this idea of fundamentals, that if you can demonstrate you can do these key building blocks, uh, you're able to notionally build anything else. I mean, uh, we've demonstrated like several of our languages that we can fabricate are true and complete. So in theory, you can encode any compute out of that. Now, there are questions of efficiency as with what's the most comfortable language to work in, what's the most effective one to build. Now, it's actually kind of interesting in the case of the uh, consensus algorithm that we published, that it's not actually a true uh, majority, it's an approximate majority. And what this means is there's a, there's a probability of error. And so these can actually be useful in computing systems. So you have all these ideas about things like eventual consistency, and you might have somebody who connects to your website, and it might be sufficient for you to get an approximately correct answer. So the times when this might be important are if you need to, uh, if you need better performance, or you need uh, better availability, but you need to answer the question as data flows in. Then being able to, uh, for example, have what's more of one or more of less, and if there's only a minuscule probability of a fail of an incorrect answer, that might be tolerable depending on your system design. What are the other things that Microsoft is doing around this molecular programming and molecular computing? Uh, so there's a quite interesting project uh, by a, a related group of ours in the US. Uh, so they're working on, rather than molecular computing, they're working on molecular storage. So using DNA as a long-term mechanism for storing data. As you can probably imagine, that they're associated with the Azure team as well. Uh, and the long-term long goal for this is just the enormous potential if you if you look at DNA and you imagine being able to pack enough of it in, its information density is far above any kind of conventional storage that we have. So by some measures, you can fit um, exabytes of data into uh, cubic millimeters. Now you've got a question about how you get it all together and how you untangle it, but these are questions that they're they're looking into understanding. Yeah, oh, that would be so much better than tape drives. It's got potential. It'd be a lot easier to carry around all your data in some ways, but uh, you do you do have to get it off as well. And so that's something that's being actively looked into. The, one of the interesting things actually is that team has the the current published record of uh, biggest amount of information stored, and so it's it's 200 megabytes, which is it sounds very small, but uh, these processes go up rapidly when you can figure out uh, tools for doing it. They sure do. So, is your sense that the ways that we will be using biology as computation, do you think they'll be similar to how our bodies use biology for computation? Or are the processes that we have evolved so complex and so difficult to actually untangle that we can't actually get to the root of how our body... I mean, when I think about it, it's like... You know, we have these deep learning systems that we're building these days, like image recognition systems. And the researchers who are building these image recognition systems, they will admit up front, we don't know how this is work. I mean, it's, at some level, we understand how it's working. But, you know, we openly admit these deep learning systems, they evolve in such a way that we don't really understand the features that they're looking for. They've got so many layers. 
blah 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 and that's how that's how humans evolved that's how our bodies worked and so it seems like almost intractable to decode how humans function from a biological standpoint now what we can do is look at the primitives of the human body and uh, and just observe that there are really efficient data storage techniques and uh, systems processing techniques and we can say okay let's let's look at that let's look at the human body as proof that we can build these kinds of things but decoding how how the human body has actually evolved those systems maybe intractable i mean do you, do you kind of see what i'm saying like there seems like these these two separate paths where you can look at biology as a as a template and a wide open space where you can derive your own systems and then you can look at it uh as as something where you're really trying to replicate the way that things have evolved over time and the latter to me seems seems uh far less tractable yeah i mean so it's a really interesting question it kind of gets to the heart of what some of what we're trying to do as a group so there are these uh two different takes on biology one is the kind of bioinformatics route where you've got observed behavior the phenotype of an organism and you have the genetic code and you you try and draw correlations and causation uh, between those we're actually it's like you were saying that we're focusing on some of the fundamental primitives so we're we're trying to attack uh, that problem of how this individual bits and piece of a biological system works like for example how an immune system cell uh, assesses whether another cell has been infected or whether it's healthy and there are a lot of uh, imaging techniques that you can look at the the fragments of proteins that are coming off and trying to build models of how the the immune system works from a mathematical perspective and we've had some really good progress in understanding estimates of that and then using that to build predictive models of how the body will behave so we are seeing uh, on a on a on a functional basis fragments of how uh, biological systems work success in building software models that are mechanistic I, they're not just um, a deep learning models, which, as you say, a lot of the practitioners in the field would say it's predictive, but we don't understand the the inside reasoning. We we try where possible to work on a basis of understand the mechanism and be able to draw uh, connections that we could explain to a biologist and think they would recognise, because we feel it's long term uh, more supportable. Sure, absolutely. I mean. Um... Yeah, like I think about the the medical industry, and um, you know, I know a number of people who are on these these pharmaceutical drugs, and or they're you know either it's um, chronic, uh, chronically they're on the drug, like it, it's they're planning to be on it for the rest of their life, or it's some kind of short term thing. And I always found the claims that a lot of pharmaceutical drugs to be making to be so suspect because uh, they tend to be claims that are just like okay yeah we apply this drug and then we get this kind of outcome and then they sort of uh sidestep the question of okay uh this is a causal connection or you know or we 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 un- we have a very good understanding of of this causal connection um when in fact it's more of like a correlative thing like we've thrown enough stuff at the wall and oh this kind of works better than other things like and there's a disconnect between the consumer and the creator of that uh, pharmaceutical practice, and this is you know, maybe getting a little off topic, but uh, I just bring it up to to say that I I agree with your your perspective that it would be more sustainable to understand what is actually going on rather than having this kind of um, random walk and and eventually stumbling upon some sort of success. Yeah, I mean, so we do use those techniques as well because we're pragmatic. We'll use what works. Um, and so one good example of that is that we've we've built circuits that fulfill a purpose, and we've generated other circuits that are more complex versions of that, like adding in various different features that correspond to biological systems. And then you've got a question like, why is the biology like that? And we have a really interesting paper that we've used these kind of numerical methods to. Uh, ex- to simulate a noisy system, so the things you find in a, in a body, like a lot of chemicals going on and changing how the system is being signaled, and simulated that in software. And we show that the more complex versions are better and better at handling noise. So a simple circuit works in a, in a petri dish on its own, but 
by adding in these specific areas of complexity, we can show that in noisy systems. Now, it's a bit of a stretch to say that we understand the mechanisms of exactly why that's happening in the biology or why that was chosen. But it is interesting that the complexity can be progressively justified at times. An area that we haven't discussed yet that Microsoft is concerned with is synthetic biology. What is synthetic biology? There's a lot of different definitions of this. Kind of one of the origins, the idea would be you'd be able to build up uh, from fundamental parts, kind of equivalent biology at a larger scale. So, but other people term, use the term synthetic biology to be ge uh, a more generic engineering of biology. The idea that you might be able to alter cells to produce stuff that you want. So this is kind of used for uh, industrial processes. So if you want to produce a certain drug, like we've mentioned the pharmaceutical companies, most of the companies are now switching over to uh, using biological routes. They tended to use chemical routes before, but uh, biological routes, so in a sense, uh, chemistry with a bit more intelligence and adaptability, that they can more efficiently and at higher yields, if you can design the biology, produce what you need. What do you mean? Can you talk more about how those pharmaceutical research techniques have changed over time? Yeah, so you, you often in, in pharmaceuticals, uh, trying to produce a certain compound that you've shown has uh, like an on-target effect for some kind of disease or, or issue a person has. And so you know the chemical you want to produce, and there might be routes to produce that through chemistry, but they might be incredibly low-yield and therefore expensive. You might, might need uh, vast amounts of uh, chemicals to produce fractions of a percentage of the, the target molecule that you want. And it's also kind of interesting that biology has all these tricks um, that it can catalyze reactions that are infeasible otherwise. And so you might know the molecule you want, but you can't easily produce it. But some other form of a biological uh, entity like cells might happen to do a part of that pathway. And so it gives you a, an extra bit of a toolbox. Can you talk about the projects at Microsoft around synthetic biology? Uh, yeah, so one of the things we're doing at the moment, again, it comes back to fundamentals, is um, um, Alan Choing had this really interesting paper in the 50s um, where he talks about the uh, chemical basis of morphogenesis. The important point about this is that one of the things he observed is a lot of uh, high-level macroscale biological systems like stripes or spots on animals can actually be explained by really simple chemical interactions. So... You can imagine being able to do this if, if you said, like, send the, the dark uh, chemicals to this part, and if you had a master plan. But what he was observing is that these systems can actually self-organize and produce this really interesting complexity. And there are all questions about symmetry breaking, about how this actually goes on in practice. But what we're trying to do is take that mathematical model and build it into cells so that we can form patterns in uh, bacteria. Um I want to talk about stem cells some. Um, what is a stem cell and how does stem cell biology play into Microsoft's research? Okay, so a, a stem cell is a, a cell that can become many other types of cells and also self-renew. So the origin of your, your body is made up by a series of stem cells that have differentiated along a, a tree of different uh, cells. And so the parts of your body where uh, in, in some kind of bloods that you might still have uh, like certain quantities of stem cells. The hope of this is it's, it's kind of the basis of this idea of regenerative medicine. If you can convince uh, some of your cells to go back up the differentiation and become other cells, it could fix all sorts of problems. So uh, the possibilities of this are huge. That therapies are used for people who are blind and people who have had uh, stem cells harvested from them or uh, fully differentiated cells. They've been treated with chemicals, turned back into the stem cells and had them re-injected and they've been able to see. I mean, so this is, this is the kind of, like, this is what science should be in terms of medicine. The problems we see is that we don't know why that works at times. So we don't know why it works, but we were compelled to try it. What is, what's at the root of that scientific, um, method i mean because that's i think that's kind of gets to the heart of, of what we're talking about also like here is something that we to don't totally understand but we were compelled to try it how are we compelled in that direction just because there's so much motivation of understanding something like developmental biology so understanding how you go from a fetus to a 
full baby and you're born and as your body progresses over time. I mean, that type of thing is studied in simpler mammals uh, and also uh, simpler organisms as well. And we want to understand how that process works. And one of the key elements of that is how does a cell decide it should differentiate into one cell type? How does it decide this is the right location? And this is thought to be like series of chemical signals and internal state of tracking what's happened to the cell in the past. And we want to know what that process is. And you can do that potentially by uh, breaking the cells in particular ways and seeing if it still fulfills its role or adding additional chemicals at different time periods. Are there specific research experiments around stem cells that you're doing at Microsoft? Uh, so we don't tend to do any of the stem cell experiments in Husk. I should actually mention, although we have a wet lab here, we also collaborate with uh, the Plant Sciences Group in Cambridge, the University of Washington uh, in the US. On the stem cell work, we all the work is done externally from our lab. So there's a stem cell institute at the University of Cambridge that do amazing work, and we, we collaborate with them on this. So what we're tending to do is the modeling and helping advise the experimentalists which, which experiments are the most likely to have interesting results. So one of the experiments that we've published a paper in Science uh, about is taking uh, experimental data about which chemical signals were needed to make the genes switch on in the right sequence for the stem cells to self-renew their population. And so the way we do this is by taking uh, models of the genetic network and experimental observations and running it through uh, what's termed a constraint solver or a an SMT solver. So this is a piece of research that Microsoft uses for analyzing like uh, device drivers and the like. Um, we've turned it and applied it to biology. Can you talk more about how, I mean, how, how did you have the insight to, to apply that type of tool to something so closely related to bio, biology? I, I can only explain that by my extremely brilliant colleagues. <laughs> okay. Um, that's very interesting. Can you talk more about how you see private institutions like Microsoft interacting with the research universities? Because it sounds like the relationship that Microsoft has with these uh, universities, like in Cambridge or University of Washington, it sounds like it really is a relationship that caters to the strengths of both parties. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we... Uh, Historically, we focused entirely on the modeling. It's only been in the last uh, couple of years that we've also started doing some of the experimental validation as well. And, and we still maintain our links with other labs to, on a lot of the larger scale experimental work. We just wanted to narrow the feedback loop on some of our uh, internal designs as well. But you should definitely think of Microsoft research in general, but as especially as being like an academic uh, organization. We see the long-term industrial potential uh, with a lot of ideas, but it, it's kind of amazing that Microsoft uh, has this uh, long-term vision of ideas and giving them time to uh, come to fruition. Absolutely, and given that long-term thinking and the academic sensibility that you seem to have from the research Microsoft research standpoint, what's your sense for how the the how things progress in Microsoft research versus in universities because I, I mean uh, in universities and perhaps government institutions there are places where there's red tape or funding issues um, you know do, are the lack of those things desirable qualities that you uh, kind of seek out given that they're not uh, they're not as existent in uh, in in an industrial setting. I mean, it's certainly amazing to have the resources when we can demonstrate the value of it. So there've been people who have had ideas internally that they can commercialize them, and then they can get uh, enormous amounts of resources internally to then back them up. But it's great to also be able to uh, carry out the more speculative ideas that are going to be huge game changers in uh, in the future. So I. There's, all the, there's the work on things like the Connect that were many years in the making and now uh, major pieces of deployed commercial technology. Has Microsoft had any fruitful partnerships with other industrial organizations like pharmaceutical companies? Uh, we certainly have kind of ongoing work. Uh, 
a lot of the ideas that we work on are these fundamental improvements. And so they, a lot of pharmaceutical companies come to talk to us about these ideas and how they might apply them to design of biological systems. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future, like whether the kind of active therapeutics based on these methods are, are something that shows enough benefit that could be deployed commercially as well. There are certain things that we do today in medicine that I think eventually will look like they are really like out of the stone age. Like they're going to look like the modern equivalent of bloodletting. And specifically, I'm thinking of the lack of personalized medicine, like the way that we treat people in terms of medicine and it's not personalized. Um, you know, this, I think of this as an example where it's really unfortunate that, we're, that we can kind of see the the road in terms of personalized medicine, how useful it's going to be. But we, we, we're not just not there yet because we don't have the right tooling. We don't have the right, um, I guess, experimental techniques. Or Maybe you could talk more about that. Like, what is the road to personalized medicine? I mean, so there's actually a really interesting version of that, that I saw. And this is very speculative and it's not work done directly by our lab. But people took uh, samples of um, a person. They applied the right chemicals to uh, induce uh, stem cell-like behavior, and they were able to grow what's termed an, uh, a liver organoid. And so the idea of this is it's not a full organ. It's a, uh, it's a set of cells or, or, or set of tissue that has some of the same characteristics. And one of the ideas comes exactly as you're saying to kind of personalize medicine, that if you could grow this on a person basis, you could then give the chemicals you're proposing to give to that person to this uh, organoid instead first and then see if there's any rejection or see what effects it has and so the, the potential for like long-term drug safety and experimental technique is enormous that rather than having to treat on animal models uh, you can instead treat more directly on something that corresponds to human because I mean I, we, we see the same things of uh, press releases of uh, cancer treatments in mice which is great it's good for treating cancer in mice but a lot of those don't necessarily translate because of the enormous complexity and even variability between mice and human immune systems. Not to mention the ethical concerns that we kind of put to the side with animal testing. I mean, testing on an organoid, you know, there's no nervous system that it's connected to. So as far as we understand pain and how animals process pain, there's not really any of that associated with testing on an organoid. Exactly. It would be amazing if we could move all the so all the testing into software, but we probably need some biological models. And so it would be an amazing intermediate step of growing the models of biological systems that we want with sufficient accuracy that uh, drugs and experiments could be tested on those as an intermediate step. And drug discovery, I think you mentioned that the strategies for drug discovery are going from a chemical purely chemical chemistry basis to more of a biological basis how how do you see drug discovery changing in the near future uh, so just on the initial the shorter term basis it's the fabrication of those uh, drugs so drugs that we've established are already efficient some of them are actually quite hard to grow uh, so there's a great case of this in synthetic biology where uh, one of the precursors to an anti-malarial drug can only be extracted from a certain plant uh, this is artemisinin acid and a company called Amaris had an enormous many-year project costing many millions of dollars in order to design a biological uh, pathway that produced this compound. This is too expensive. Like most uh, companies aren't being able to afford that. It's not cost-effective to do that. And so just from a pharmaceutical drug manufacturing perspective, then there's a lot of benefit that these uh, synthetic biology fabrication techniques have. So longer term, there's these questions about could we design better drugs? But that's a, there's a lot more uh, speculative questions around that. What about CRISPR? I hear a lot about this technology. What is CRISPR useful for? Are you doing any research around CRISPR? So this is an efficient editing technique. So it, it, you can actually just see it in some ways as an engineering technique, that it becomes cheaper to edit genomes where you want to edit them. So the origin of this is uh, it's a kind of bacterial immune system that it uses to uh, defend itself against viruses. It's kind of weird to think about this, that bacteria themselves get infections as well. Um, and so this is actually a quite recent discovery, and it's become a huge thing in the, the 
uh, engineering of biological systems in the last few years. But you can also just see it as a cost reduction, that there were techniques for fabricating uh, the genomes you wanted, but they were, they were laborious and CRISPR is a lot more targeted. So this allows us to write uh, the changes to uh, biological systems that we want to in a, in a cheaper fashion. And also a lot more, a lot fewer off-target effects. The current way that we do biological testing and, um, you know, wet labs and stuff, it it reminds me of like when you see those. I mean, when I'm just like projecting myself into the future, uh, it reminds me of those pictures that you see of people working in these huge rooms with IBM computers or with vacuum tubes and stuff. And it seems like we are going to eventually get to a point where we have these automated labs uh, where it's like an Amazon Web Services or a Microsoft Microsoft Azure for running biological experiments and where you get to the point where you can have some kid uh, who's in high school who can spin up an experiment from his desktop computer. Uh, do you think that's, is that a fanciful notion or do you think that is something that will be a reality? Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of companies that do a version of this. So Emerald, right? There's an Emerald something? Uh, uh, Emerald Cloud Labs, I think it is. Uh, there's also a company yes. called Transcriptic. Uh, there's also a related uh, application called the, uh, I think it's Synthetic Biology uh, Foundry at Imperial College in London. So uh, the UK is uh, investing substantially in synthetic biology in general. And we're, Microsoft Research is part of a consortium. And one of those uh, aspects is uh, this idea of a foundry where you can send instructions for an experiment and those instructions will be uh, carried out and you'll then get the results back. So that in some ways is even better than what we tend to do at the moment, which is we send off the specification for our inputs and then we do a lot of the experiments ourselves. It is really early days. Um, so some of the companies involved in this, uh, what actually happens is you get a list of instructions and then somebody in a lab uh, wanders around and carries out those, <laughs> which uh, I don't know if you like. You know the ter the original term like mechanical Turk. Um, oh, yeah. I, I kind of think of it a little bit like mechanical Turk uh, version of biology. It helps you're not having to do it yourself, but there's still a human doing it. Human in the loop. I mean, uh, but that's you know that's oftentimes the place where autom where um, complex automation starts because once you have once you have the mechanical Turk side of things then you've at least you've at least bounded the start and end of the process that is necessary to automate and then the person who is in the middle proceeding with that automation can better understand okay what are the steps that um, make up this wet lab experiment that the person has commissioned me to do uh, and then one by one those individual steps can be automated and before you know it you've got you've got a robot system doing it yeah, so exactly. I mean, we have a number of robots in our in our own wet lab that we're trying to connect from our programming languages. Uh, so it goes beyond just the software simulation, but we want to be able to design experiments that have the highest information content. And ideally, we'd like a lot of these things to be carried out automatically. Uh, but our experimental uh, biologists are, are significantly more flexible. So you have this kind of experimental phase and then you might turn it into a standardized uh, environment. So a bit like in the same in computing, like you, you experiment with a machine, how to specify what you want it to be, and then you have a standardized container and you can deploy a thousand of them. What are the other tools that Microsoft Research is developing and using, stuff that we have not discussed yet? Can you, can you talk about some of the tooling that your team is working on? I mean, in general, we, we tend to make all our tools available. So the areas we've talked about, there are corresponding software tools. And we tend to think it's like just good science that when we publish, we also try and make tools available that pe people can run over the web. I mean, but the thing is, most of these tools are for the relatively small scale. And so one of the big questions we have is, um, how do we make it possible for people to uh, use uh, whole clusters the same way we do internally? And what we experiment with it's taking exactly the same methods uh, of analysis, but be able to run them through the kind of machine learning algorithms. And we'd like to make these things available, uh, well, because it's in-house, uh, so people could spin up all the machines necessary to do it on Azure, get back their answers, and then get on with their science. Okay, I want to close off with a somewhat naive question, but maybe you will have some interesting responses. Um, I find that naive questions sometimes spur 
complex and interesting responses, but do you think we will solve cancer? Because cancer, cancer to me seems like an example of this thing where it's really hard to tell are all, are all, do all cancers, do all malignant cancers have some kind of quality that we can define and then deploy a drug to uh, snipe all of those types of cancers? Or is it this thing that is so deeply wedded to our biology that we can't identify the generality of cancer and we are reduced to uh, this this problem of, of developing specialized treatments for all specific kinds of cancers? So most of the biologists in like cancer therapies tend to say, that it's not really thinking of it in the right way to cure cancer because cancer is in a sense your cells having errors and going off on on a row. It's not you shouldn't think of it exactly as uh, this infection that's come into your body that you want to uh, kill each individual one. Now that said, one way to cure the cancer is if you can selectively kill those cells that have these bugs, these errors going on. You can manage the whole process, and so one of the things that we've uh, worked around is like uh, chemical sensing and so if you can do things like uh, accurately detect uh, a cell is cancerous and if you take another technique which we haven't mentioned uh, which is termed like DNA origami and so this is weaving or stapling together sheets of uh, DNA and putting therapeutics inside there you can actually more selectively deliver those therapeutics now that they've shown this can work in in experimental lab conditions but this is not something that's done in humans or at all yet but the idea would be if you can selectively target where things are and you can recognize it accurately and you're operating in a molecular scale you can more accurately interact with it rather than like like you were saying the very primitive technique of essentially chemotherapy drug is selective poison in your body and because cancer cells tend to grow more rapidly they they consume more poison and that nobody would think that's a good idea but actually it's kind of effective obviously okay colin well Thanks for coming on the show. It's been an inspiring conversation with you and uh, exciting to hear about where Microsoft is going in terms of research into biology. Uh, great. Thanks for inviting me on.